Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Welcome to another riveting episode of AI Name This Show. We are your human hosts. I'm Teja Custodi. And I'm Tristan Jutra. If you're new here on AI Name This Show, we're decoding all the jargon around AI and keeping you up to date in the fast moving world of artificial intelligence. With that said, in today's episode, Tristan and I are discussing whether or not AI art is or can be copyrightable, the use of GPT-4 to moderate content, and we make a critical digital death care decision and debate how we can live on through our very own AI chatbots. Tristan, who would have thought we would be kicking off an episode of AI Name This Show talking about a Hollywood Reporter article? The mind boggles. Well, over the years, we've seen increasing intersection of tech and TV and film. And with the recent writer's strike and actor's strike, there have been a number of AI-related issues that have come into play. In 2018, Stephen Thaler, who is chief executive of the neural network firm Imagination Engines, listed an AI system called the Creativity Machine as the sole creator of an artwork called A Recent Entrance to Paradise, which was described as an autonomously created by a computer algorithm running on a machine. However, the copyright office to whom he submitted this entry denied the application on the grounds that the nexus between the human mind and creative expression is a crucial element of protection. Well, Stephen was not impressed with the ruling. He argued that AI should be acknowledged as an author where it otherwise meets authorship criteria, with any ownership vesting in the machine's owner, meaning him. So he basically sued the copyright office and... Now we're hearing from the, a federal judge who has basically said, in short, well, you know what? AR art is not actually copyrightable. And the Copyright Office was well within the rights to basically say, eh, denied. Yeah. And it was really interesting because the judge ruled on what he's calling human authorship, which, first of all, what does that actually mean? And does that need to be redefined? Because... If you want to get into the technicality of it, let's just go super base level. If you're a prompt engineer or if you're Stephen prompting and knowing in your mind what you want the AI work to be and making sure you are putting in prompts to generate that, even though he didn't necessarily physically generate the art, isn't there authorship in that? Because he prompted that art to be generated. So that would be my argument 
on Stephen's side. But I'm not a lawyer. So basically, they found that because the work was created in their minds without any human involvement, um, that was the primary reason for denying the copyright registration. So there was no grounds for a lawsuit. And this was consistent with copyright law and the understanding thereof, which traditionally requires human authorship. And they're thinking, well, it's the, actually, it's the AI that's doing the authoring. There's no provision in the copyright law for any prompt engineering, per se, and that there was actually no provision for transfer of rights. The uh, copyright could not be transferred from a non-human entity, the AI tool in this case, to him because... There was, you know, the, because the, the AI is not an individual that from whom one can tra transfer copyright. So it's almost like, well, that's why they're not even hearing the case, because you don't even qualify, because you, you, you've got two individuals involved, but one of them is not even a human. So we've, there's been similar cases in the past where you can't copyright, say, a photograph taken by a monkey, because the monkey if would technically own the copyright, not you, and but since the monkey's not a person and not covered under the copyright law, it can't transfer that copyright to you. Uh, yeah, but flaw in that argument, who owns the camera? Obviously, the monkey doesn't own the camera. So if I own the camera, I should own the copyright. And I also am taking up case with the, again, the language of this, which is saying the absence of human involvement. But Stephen, in this case, was involved because he had to prompt the AI to generate the image. I guess I'm actually legally wrong in this case because I would lose in court. But I am, this is the hill I'm going to die on. That's it. Well, and I guess the court would argue that there's no means for the transfer of copyright. You couldn't sign a contract with the AI or a monkey uh, saying that, well, since you're you, the monkey, you're using my camera that I own the copyright because the monkey's not capable of entering, entering into a contract. So it's kind of like a non-starter at the beginning. I just look forward to a future where we're constantly using monkey analogies when talking about <laughs> AI. Furthermore, I guess to, to your point, one of the potential counter arguments is that AI generated works may have significant you know, economic and social value. And by denying copyright protection, you're kind of discouraging innovation and investment in you know AI tech in general. So therefore, they should be eligible for protection. It's kind of like saying, well, what, someone's using mid-journey to create images, so you can't copyright that? I think there's still a lot of work to be done and probably further test cases to come. I'm still on Stephen's side because when you think about the argument of cameras and like the camera, it generates like a it's a it's a reproduction of a scene, essentially, mm -hmm. <laughs> for better lack of a term. It can only do that, though, after you, a human, conceptualizes the scene and the structure of that scene and the framing and the lighting. And there's all these, again, hum human involvement that goes into the creative direction, if you will, behind use of a camera. So I would still argue there's a lot of creative direction and human involvement around prompting an AI to create an image for you. You have to give it parameters. You have to have an idea in your mind of what you want created. Well, perhaps when, when this content continues to flood various social networks, regardless of who is acknowledged as having created it, perhaps we can get other AIs to moderate the content. 
such as OpenAI says it's already been using GPT-4, the brains behind ChatGPT, to develop and refine its own content policies. So Tasia, can we just remove the humans from the content moderation equation altogether now? Well, they're certainly arguing that there's major benefits to doing so. One saying that people can interpret policies differently while machines are quite consistent in their judgments. And are they? I, I, this is what they're arguing. How consistent is ChatGPT, for example, when you ask the same question multiple times? Literally never. You will never get the same answer. Everybody try it. Ask the same question. You will get a different answer every single time. <laughs> but in this case, OpenAI is saying that's, I guess, overall across the board, they're more reliable than humans. They're also making an argument that GPT-4 can allegedly help develop a new policy within hours. Like a content moderation policy. Exactly, where it would take a lot more human power and time and money to come up with new policies as they develop. But I don't know. Should we be relying on, on this? And, and is that, is the writing the most time-consuming part? Or is all the consultation with the various stakeholders and whatnot the time-consuming part? It seems that OpenAI is kind of glossing over some of the messy human details of doing these things. Because content moderation policies aren't created in a vacuum. They're created in a company culture. What are those companies' values? And you could, of course, tell the large language model, in this case, GPT-4, uh, what your, your company values are for sure. But there's still a lot of pre-work that would have to happen there. And you know, I suppose it's fair to say that if you did that pre-work, which you should be doing anyhow, that it would help expedite the creation of the content moderation policies. But again, don't forget to proofread, folks, because there could be some surprises in there otherwise. But where I will say that this would come in handy, and I agree with them, which is their third point, that this benefits the well-being of workers. Because right now, if you need humanized to moderate everything, a lot of these people are exposed to harmful content, explicit content, horrible things like child abuse things and torture things. I mean, the list goes on and on. And this is really nothing new. Like you look at all of our big tech companies like behind Facebook and Google or, you know, even YouTube, if we want to bring that up or TikTok or any of these social networks, there are people behind all that moderation. So when something gets flagged, it's a human, you or I, that has to double check the system flags essentially and a lot of that can be quite harmful and lead to a lot of PTSD like symptoms and a lot of processing that these actual real human beings have to go through and sometimes these companies aren't really giving these content moderators any type of mental health support or care and that's got to be tricky to be seeing that type of content. Like you think of how damaging it is when you come across something on the web, like a horrible news story or something, and say it's like a one-off that you've seen that. If your job day in and day out was to see the worst things online and to be like, oh yeah, no, this was a proper flag. It's awful. So if we could minimize that, there you go. All for it. Meta uh, had a, has a system that they've moved towards called the Whole Post Integrity Embeddings or WPIE which is basically 
AI working together with human beings to basically to help protect the humans. The machine learning models will do a lot of the heavy lifting. And then every once in a while, there has to be some human intervention. So we'll see what OpenAI has up its sleeve, if, if it can improve on existing uh, machine and computer collaborations for content moderation, but I think we, we can all agree it would definitely uh, aid the well-being of said workers, which aren't necessarily highly paid. They often work as contractors for uh, outsourced organizations. They don't necessarily enjoy all the benefits from the, the main companies, such as a meta. So anything we can do to lighten the load. But again, it's important to remember any system can be gamed. So if people figured out, figure out certain types of content that they aren't noticing, you know they're going to generate more of that kind of content or even a way to mask it or what have you. And it's going to be this whole cat and mouse game. But the more we can shield these poor human content moderators, the better. Let the machines do the heavy lifting. And then eventually we'll have to send the machines to counseling. Now, I will say, this is generally when you think of content moderation, what you think of. However... I'd like to bring up a little whoopsie-doopsie for you before we move on to our main story, because I do think no matter how advanced we get with this AI, at some point we are going to need some type of human moderator or perhaps fact checker. And Microsoft waded into this a little bit of a whoopsie <laughs> this past it. week. They, they stepped in it. There was an MSN.com Microsoft Travel Section article posted by by AI. It was an AI-generated article. And unfortunately, it suggested an Ottawa food bank as a cannot-miss tourist spot in Canada. Oh, boy. And it has since been updated, but not before it wrote, and I quote, consider going into it on an empty stomach. I'm going to pause for dramatic effect. <laughs> I mean, it's terrible. Microsoft's response to this was that, oh, it was actually a human error. This wasn't an AI error. We we check everything. And they've been very much like, oh, we're open about like our, our content policies. But this is clearly, I'm not sure how a human could have checked this and missed something so huge like that. Should we be tagging this content when we're seeing this content? Because they're not the only ones that post AI-generated content, should we be tagging it in some way that says that this was AI-generated? And CNET, for one, after it was noticed that they've been using AI to generate a number of technology articles a few months ago for SEO reasons, search engine optimization, monetized with uh, affiliate ads, they, I believe, if I recall correctly, have started flagging stuff a little bit more uh, transparently so that if AI was involved in the creation of or wholly responsible for said articles, just like with labeling of GMOs, transparency is a good thing. But at the, but then how, how, how transparent do you need to be? If you're just a company with a website, do you need to say that, oh, the content on this page was made with ChatGPT or another similar tool as a, as a tool? I mean, we don't have to say when we're using Microsoft Word Anyhow. Perhaps, <laughs> I suppose. I never thought of it that way. So we're going to have like labels everywhere. You can change my mind sometimes. <laughs> Just not when it comes to copyrighted AI art. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. 
from ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. <laughs> so there are other more... Deadly issues, I, I suppose, mm. <laughs> involving uh, artificial intelligence and machine learning nowadays. And there's a recent article in Wired magazine about using generative AI to resurrect the dead and how it will create a burden for the living. AI technologies promise more chatbots and replicas of people who have passed, but giving voice to the dead comes at a human cost. Now, some folks might remember a couple of years ago, there was uh, a case of a gentleman who created a chatbot uh, using GPT-3, I believe, which was the tool at the time before it was publicly available. This fellow's name was uh, Joshua, and he lived in Bradford, Canada, and he lost his girlfriend. She died, and he was playing around with these tools and managed to concoct uh, a replica of her in chatbot form because he had saved all their text messages and whatnot. And it did a remarkably good job of, of semi simulating her manner of speech. And he found it quite therapeutic. He had experimented designing some other chatbots first before he got into it. In each case, he created an expiry date, like a certain number of credits before said each of these chatbots would die. And he did the same with, in this case, with his girlfriend, Jessica. And she eventually did die again. The chatbot died. And he didn't feel like spinning up another one from scratch and having to get going and not training per se, but just the whole, the whole process. Now, this all ties into this notion of whether these kinds of issues, A, are like healthy for people, can they be therapeutic, or can they actually prolong one's grief? Do they, or the grieving process and not assist people in actually letting go? So the article basically gets into creating the digital replicas of the deceased using AI chatbots to mimic the personalities of your deceased loved ones whether it's using chat GPT or otherwise to simulate these conversations, you know, once you've fed in previous uh, examples. What do you think, Tasia? when, when I go, are you going to do this, this show with digital me? <laughs> I wonder, I think you and I, after we discuss this article should vote on whether or not we would do this and what we think that would look like maybe. But before we get into that and maybe, authorship and like authority over our digital replicas if we decide to go down that route i'm not going to judge either way it's up to you 
But I will say this article brings up a lot of good points, including one being like this is really labor intensive maintenance to to do this. So it's like there's a lot that happens on the back end of these any digital platform. You've got digital estates to manage, dealing with passwords and account information and things like, you know, you've you've mentioned if you're going to set expiry dates, well, someone's got to keep some stuff up to date up until that point. Make, making sure it remains accessible and in working order. So there's a lot that goes behind the scenes than just, oh, oh, cool, I'll, I'm going to make a digital chatbot. I think there's a lot more than people realize that goes into maintaining all of these systems, essentially. Well, there's also the question of, uh, of consent as well. Like, uh, who is, is the person that you're creating the chatbot of? Did they consent to that? We're getting into issues of things like... Not just, I guess, not living wills in this case, but actual wills. Do you, or living wills, if you go comatose and you're still technically alive, but people still want to talk to you in some way. I mean, you get the human aspect of this. Like, we don't want to let go. And just just look at a movie like Her, starring Joaquin Phoenix, where he falls in love with an AI. And spoiler alert, when she just decides to move on, he's devastated. But it's also, I think, too, why some people are putting these checks in place, like you mentioned how he did with Jessica, essentially, that it will, for lack of a better term, expire at a certain point. But, you know, leading up to that, there's also like the whole decay of technology argument is we know how quick tech moves. So what happens if you either don't set an expiry date because you can't think about living without this person, even if it is a chatbot version of this person because you find comfort as this technology changes. And what if that goes away? What if the company no longer exists? There's been a handful of these companies already. I believe one was actually based in Scottsdale, Arizona. That company no longer exists. So what happens to that data then? What happens to your chatbot loved one? Can I call the chatbot a loved one? (laughs) Have I gone too far? Oh no, I've fallen into the trap. My worlds are colliding. Uh, (laughs) Well, I mean, we've seen apps that no longer work after you've updated your operating system, whether it's your computer or your your smartphone. It's like, oh, I I lost my digital co-host now because I updated my operating system. Speaking of whoopsie doopsies, there's also the the notion of archiving uh, the quote unquote digital belongings of their uh, of one's loved ones and. That was we actually explored that a little bit uh, several years ago in a documentary I was part of called Death in the Cloud, where we talked about one's digital legacy and how one preserves that and the sorts of tools that are in place from social networks, for example, to create a legacy page after someone dies. But these are things you should think of ahead of time. Who are you giving permission to to manage your online digital assets? your personal information and whatnot after you're gone. So all those sorts of issues kind of have this extra complicated layer when we're talking about the preservation of one's personality, so to speak, in digital form so that one can chat with them. And we're getting quickly into sci-fi territory here. It's not just a hologram of Tupac performing on stage. And I'm not sure what the, (laughs) and that was several years ago now, but people are creating avatars, personal, uh, personalities of these historical figures, to, whether it's you know, George Washington or the, you know, the, for, uh, the 
not planet known as Pluto. <laughs> that was an early Google experiment where you, you're populating these digital personalities and you can interact with them. Well, what if that means that you never have to let your loved ones go anymore? Are we wired as humans to do that? I mean, we can only maintain so many like relationships with living people as it is. And now if we're maintaining these relationships with those who have passed before us as well. I mean, the idea is cool, but at what point does it become actually too much, too, too burdensome and keep us stuck in the past? Well, and you also bring up another good point of the control and ownership. If you think about it, is it you or me that, that controls the chatbot? Probably not. It's probably the developer and or the company. You really have to think about that if you want to create one of these, you know, digital death personas, if you will. <laughs> Who is going to have ownership of your loved one's AI? <laughs> the the family going to be battling over not just the proceeds of the estate, but who has right? who controls grandma's chatbot? Right. There's there's you know other things to consider too. We talk a lot. I know you and I have talked a lot ad nauseum about everything else that goes into running these large language models and everything in terms of like your environmental impact and the resources that it takes. And we could have a whole other podcast just on the resources it takes to run these systems. So there's that to think about too, is that do you want to be using up precious resources in this way as well, including water, lots of other raw materials, lots of energy. You got to cool those data centers. You got to keep keep them powered up. And the costs associated as well. Like at last report, it was about 37 cents per chat GPT query. And they, OpenAI was spending $700,000 a day on server costs. So there's only so much that they can maintain with that before they have to start charging people money. And we've got chat GPT 3.5 is available for free. You pay $20 US a month if you want ChatGPT Plus, which gives you access to GPT-4. What happens if you let your subscription lapse? Oops, we lost we lost grandma. Or whatever mm -hmm. service it is, there's going to be costs associated with that. And now there's just so many things that we didn't have to think about, even just like 20 years ago, Tasha. Don't delete grandma by accident. Yeah. You ever think we'd be having a conversation about this? This is a legitimate... I can see this happening now when you go into an office and you put together your estate and trust documents and your will and whatever you're doing, that people will be considering something like this for themselves and then saying, just like you could, you know, with your iPhone or with Facebook or whatever, leave like a legacy contact to if you die and they can take over your socials and or your information on your phone, which is great. I can see this happening now where we go in to work on our will and you or I are putting somebody in charge of, yeah, I want you to make a chap out of me. I want you, and I would I would outline everything just to make it easy for you, Tristan, because it's going to be you that's in charge perfect. of life. You're yeah, going to haunt perfect. us forever. Great. I'm going to haunt you forever. Wait a sec. Yeah. I'm older. I don't want I'm an end first. date. <laughs> no, I don't want an end date. So none of this. So then if you pass, you got to figure out, I'm going to put a whole line of succession of who's got to maintain oh boy. the Tasia chatbot, and I'll come up with a better name after. This sounds like a lot of work. I don't know. Would you do it for real, though? Would you do it for a loved one or for yourself, perhaps? Would you want a loved one to do it? Or would you even outline in your will to people, please don't do this. 
Like, that's not my wishes after I go. Please don't do it. Well, for myself, I guess if there was enough demand, sure, maybe. I mean, if we're getting to the point where with the advances we've been seeing so recent years, maybe we'll be brain, brains in jars eventually anyway. So you, we don't need an AI to replicate me. It can actually be me. Hello. Uh, as for others, if I wanted to, if I had real trouble letting go of a loved one, especially like in this case that we were, um, you know, talking about with this, with Jessica, if it's someone that's taken too soon, I totally get the impulse. Now I could see myself maybe experimenting a little bit, but I'm not sure if I would tell anyone. I totally see that, Tristan. (laughs) I wouldn't be like... But it would be jarring. Right. You know what I mean? Because I understand exactly what you're saying. And I can picture doing that as well. And just being like, you know, I really miss this person. I just want to replicate this person. Especially when you get into the replications that aren't just chatbots. But if we're talking about AI voice generation and being able to almost like hear that person again, there's a lot of comfort in that. At the same time, there's a lot of sadness in that, I would feel as well, because it would make it hit even more that they're physically not here. It's like, this is the new version of holding on to to voicemails of people that have passed. Uh, Sorry, what's a voicemail? (laughs) For those of you listening that aren't familiar with voicemail. (laughs) Then there's another sort of tangential issue as well regarding the preservation of personalities and imagery and we've seen this a little bit there was a year or two ago i saw a tv commercial that had the likeness of audrey hepburn in it i can't remember if it was maybe for cartier i think and didn't use her voice but we're at the point now where we can digitally recreate actors celebrities and whatnot there's of course estate and consent issues there too but then there's if you're thinking about it through a labor lens, and of course, labor is on Hollywood's mind at, at the moment with the aforementioned writers and actors strikes, are we actually going to be denying work to future actors who may play, would have maybe would have played those people in the past, those historical figures and the like, if we're simply, if we can just have digitally recreate them? I mean, that was an issue, uh, a related issue with the current actors strike was the request by the studios to be able to digitally scan background characters, also known as extras, so they didn't have to keep bringing them into scenes. They could just digitally recreate them. So you have that for background actors, but you could also have that for anyone who ever existed, basically, with their consent. And then future actors don't have the work of playing those folks. You wouldn't have Sean Penn playing Harvey Milk, for example, if this tech was around in Milk's day. And who has the author- like the authority to decide whether or not that can happen? Especially if you're a public figure. What does your estate do? There's so much to think about beyond the surface level of cool. <laughs> exactly. So, A, read the fine print in your contracts, folks. Make sure to check if there's any AI clauses in there. There are so many end-user license agreements. I mean, who knows? Does Facebook have the right to recreate our personalities based on everything we've ever posted. I mean, they probably have enough if you're of a certain age, I suppose, and you still use Facebook. Let's not knock it, okay? All we're going to say here is that it's complicated. (laughs) Something tells me that's going to be a recurring theme as we proceed through various episodes on these topics. We're not here to cheerlead AI. We like it. It's interesting. Very powerful tools. 
but there's also more issues to look at. Us and AI relationship status, it's complicated. This particular issue, the uh, digital replicas of the deceased, we've there's some complexities, challenges, ethical considerations surrounding the creation and maintenance of AI-generated chatbots as people continue to die, which is one thing's for certain, death and taxes, <laughs> digital replicas are ourselves going to be the other thing for certain. There's a number of issues, including labor, resource requirements, and not to mention the potential emotional impacts associated with this emerging technology. Is this a good therapeutic tool, or is this something that actually can impede our grieving process? And we're not here to tell you the answer. Doesn't that just really grind your gears? <laughs> tell us what you think. We want, we want your feedback. And in fact, you can send it to feedback at AINamedTheshow.com. And we want to know, oh, we should put, I wish we could do a poll. Well, we can. What would you do? And this is no judgment. Would you create either yourself or a loved one as an AI chatbot or any type of digital death? Death becomes her. <laughs> Starring God, Goldie Hawn and Meryl Streep. Mm, one of the best movies ever. A simpler time. Now, if you're interested in a a living <laughs> digital partner, well, check out some of the potential <laughs> complications and uh, comedic aspects of uh, introducing said digital partner to perhaps your granddad. We'll include a link in the show notes for uh, AI Boyfriend by YouTuber named Krazam. It's a masterpiece. I don't know how else to say it. Granddaughter <laughs> brings a boyfriend to meet grandpa, and he's an AI. And hilarity ensues. Check the show notes for a link. Well, we've done it. We've made it somehow to the end of another episode. Thank you for tuning in. And we are still a new show, so we would absolutely love your feedback. As we said, if you have any thoughts, good, the bad, if you want to create your own digital death AI chatbot, let us know at feedback at AINamedThisShow.com. You can also head to AINamedThisShow.com and check us out there. And make sure that you follow us, give us a review, but most importantly, that you share this with all of your friends. We would be so appreciative. And we are on all of the socials at AINamedThisShow on everything. That's Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, the platform that I am still and will always call Twitter but some of you may be calling X. We are there as well. Thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate it. Bye. We will see you in the digital afterlife. <laughs>